Now the Lord speaks to Moses again and he is told to go to Pharaoh and speak to him. So Moses obviously has been uh, getting more confident and the Lord is equipping him just as he promised. I'm the one that made your mouth. I can speak through you. I can teach you what to say. And this is what he was to say. The God of the Hebrews or the God of Israel, and he's the God of the whole earth, of course, says, let my people go that they may serve me. The Hebrew word is abad. It's sometimes translated worship, but it also can be rendered serve because to worship is to serve. And some of you may be asking the question, well, what does it look like to serve the Lord? What does that mean for me? And I wanna show you two passages that we'll turn to. First is the book of Job, which is right before Psalms. I wanna show you the life of Job he is reflecting on the good old days. We actually aired this on Walk in Truth Radio this morning. Job was the greatest man of the East. What made him great? He was a man who pursued good and turned, turned away from evil. What did his life look like? Well, in the first couple of chapters, we learned that he was a worshiper, that he offered sacrifice, that he honored God, that he prayed to God, he even offered sacrifice unless his kids had done something wrong. That's the kind of man he was. He wanted to honor God. But he goes through in Job 29 and he talks about what his life looked like. Job takes up a discourse and he says, this is Job 29, look at verse two. Oh, that I were as months gone by, Job 29, two, as in the days when God watched over me. Now God was still watching over Job, but he was obviously in the midst of a very difficult time. The enemy had attacked him full force. Notice he says, when his lamp, God's lamp shone over my head. And by his light, I walked through darkness. As I was in the prime of my days, when the friendship of God was over my tent, when the Almighty was yet within me, or yet with me, and God was still with him, but Job didn't understand what was going on. My children were around me. When my steps were bathed in butter, and the rock poured out for me streams of oil, my life was anointed when I went to the gate of the city, when I took my seat in the square, the young men saw me and hid themselves. The old men arose and stood. The princes stopped talking, put their hands on their mouths. The voice of the nobles was hushed and their tongues stuck to their palate. For when, they, when the ear heard, it called me blessed. When the eye saw, it gave witness of me. Because, notice what he did. I delivered the poor who cried for help, the orphan who had no helper. The blessing of one ready to perish came upon me, and I made the widow's heart sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I investigated the case which I did not know. I was even a man who tried to step in and do justice. I broke the jaws of the wicked, snatched the prey from his teeth, then I thought, I shall die in my nest. I shall multiply my days as the sand. Skip down to 21. To me, they listened and waited, kept silent for my counsel. After my words, they did not speak again. My speech dropped on them. They waited for me as for the rain and opened their mouth as for the spring rain. I smiled 24 on them when they did not believe. And the light of my face, they did not cast down. I chose a way for them as, and sat as a chief, as chief, and dwelt as king among the troops, as one who comforted the mourners. Sometimes when we hear 
about serving God, we wonder, well, what does a life like that look like? And it's amazing to me to read this uh, section of Job and to see what this man was like. He was sought for counsel. He stepped in and helped the needy. He was there. He was doing really what Jesus said in Matthew 25. You helped the least of these, you did it for me. Now, one more I want to show you. It's the next book over. Psalm 119. We actually studied this on Wednesday night. How do you hit the mark? The, the word for law in uh, the Old Testament is Torah, and it literally means to hit the mark. Psalm 119. I want you to look at verse 25. We studied this on Wednesday night, but it has the Hebrew word delet at the top, which means the door. This is the way you should walk, if you will. And here's what the psalmist says. Maybe, David, my soul cleaves to the dust, Psalm 119, 25. Revive me according to your word. I want you to note things of a righteous life, to serve God. I've told of my ways and you have answered me. Teach me your statutes. I don't want my ways anymore, God, I want yours. Make me understand the way of your precepts so I will meditate on your wonders. My soul weeps because of grief. Strengthen me according to your word. Remove the false way from me. Graciously grant me your law. I've chosen the faithful way. I've placed your ordinance before me. I cling to your testimonies, O oh Lord, don't put me to shame. I shall run the way of your commandments, for you will, what? Enlarge my heart. And I told the, the group on Wednesday night, I think a prayer for us should be, Lord, make my heart bigger. And I quoted the Grinch because his heart was just too small, remember? But when his eyes opened, his heart became bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's what we want. If you want to know what it means to serve God, it's not just about singing a song. It's not just about showing up at a building at a given hour. It is about making your life available to the master, enlarging your heart so you can be his hands and his feet in the world. If I just had a few of these attributes, like Job, right? Like the psalmist is talking about, Lord, enlarge my heart. Boy, the church would be making a huge impact in the world. And that's what we need to pray for. To me, that's what revival is. Back to Exodus chapter 9. This is what it means to be a worshiper, to hit the mark. And so the Lord wants Pharaoh to release his people. And he says, if you refuse, Exodus 9, 2, if you are unwilling to release my people, to let them go and continue to hold them, this is what I am going to do. Now, Pharaoh becomes a type or a picture of Satan who tries to hold the people of God in sin, which so easily, what, entangles us. And this Hebrew word for release them has the idea of restraining, that the enemy here pictured as Pharaoh, or here as Pharaoh, but a type of Satan, is trying to hold on to God's people so that they're not free to worship God in spirit and in truth and to do the things that we just touched on. I don't know what's keeping you back. I don't know what has a hold of you this morning, but it's so easy to be entangled in sin and we lose our way and we lose our effectiveness. And God says, I want you to let my people go, Satan, Pharaoh, so that they may serve me. And Pharaoh, of course, to this point was unwilling. 
He was restraining the people of God. They didn't belong to him. They belonged to God, yet he was still doing his restraining work. And we have a spiritual battle in Ephesians chapter 6, and we're to put on the full armor of God because we have an enemy and we have spiritual warfare. Amen? And I tell you what, it's, it, we see it every single day. We can see how our hearts are pulled towards that which doesn't please God, but there's still something in us that can be pulled that way. Let my people go. Release them. Uh, after our Wednesday night service, I had a chance to interact with Brother Tom, and he brought a passage to my attention I want to take you to next. It's in Luke chapter 13. And this is a beautiful interaction that Jesus has with a woman in a synagogue. Let's go to Luke 13, another look at what it means to be released in service to God. Luke 13, we'll pick it up at verse 11. Actually, 10. Jesus, Luke 13, 10, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And there was a woman who for 18 years, Brother Tom pointed out, uh, the, if you take 666, you have 18. The woman was in that condition for 18 years. She had had a sickness caused by a spirit. She was bent double and could not straighten up at all. Bound, bent over. Jesus saw her, Luke 13, 12. He called her over and said to her, woman, you are freed from your sickness. Let my people go. And he laid his hands on her. And immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. But the synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, boy, they missed the whole point, didn't they? Began saying to the crowd in response, there are six days in which work should be done. So come during them and get healed. Don't get healed on the Sabbath day. There's no healing going around here on, on the Sabbath. There's six other days that you people can't get healed from being bent over for 18 years. Talk about straining at a gnat to swallow a camel. Talk about missing the meaning of Shabbat, which is to rest and find the enjoyment and the freedom of knowing God. Amen? She was made erect again after 18 years of a wait. And the Lord answered and said, you hypocrites, you love how politically correct Jesus is? 15, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? This woman, a daughter of Abraham, as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? And as he said this, all his opponents were being humiliated. And the entire crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by him. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 9. Let my people go. I want them free to serve me. I don't want them weighed down, bent over, entangled anymore. We have a spiritual battle. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. Psalm 100, verse 2. Release my people. Romans 7, 6 says, Now we have been released from the law, having died to that which we were bound, so that we may serve in newness of spirit, Romans 7, 6, and not in oldness of the letter. 
So if you won't let him go, behold, the, land, the hand of the Lord, Exodus 9.3, will come with a very severe, Hebrew word kabed, it's devastating in the RSV, pestilence. If you won't let him go, here comes another plague. Plague number five, it will come on your livestock, New King James has it as cattle, which are in the field, that's a key thing to remember, on the horses, on the donkeys, on the camels, on the herds, if you have an NIV, it's the cattle New King James oxen, and on the flocks, if you have a New King James, it's the sheep, NIV has it as sheep and goats. All of a sudden, the uh, plague is announced, and here's what it's going to be. It's going to be against all these various animals. Now, you have to remember, in an agrarian culture where there were no cars or no transportation of that sort, animals were absolutely essential to life for the plowing of the field, for transportation and the like, for wealth. And so you could say in many ways, this is an attack not, a, not only against the religious worship, and we'll talk about this in a second, of Egypt, the false worship where they worshiped a lot of these animals, but also against their economy. God is going to attack the very place of their economic well-being, if you will. When a person or a nation was... Uh, considered well-to-do. They had a lot of this going on. They had a lot of animals and livestock and the like. And a severe pestilence was coming. And it was going to come, if you will, on the economy, on all of Pharaoh's, are you ready? Sacred cows. Now, before we move on and sit in the stands as we often can do and say, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, Pharaoh. What are our sacred cows in our country, in our life? What are the things that we've elevated as gods with a small g in our lives? Whether it's economic or even things that, you know, grab our heart. You know, later on in Exodus 32, Israel is going to make a sacred cow or calf and worship it. As Moses delays up on the mountain getting the law for 40 days and 40 nights, and they will worship this golden calf, and of all things they will say, This is the God who led you out of Egypt. Can you imagine being God up on the mountain? It's like, no wonder God said, Hey, I'm starting over with you, Moses. Just stand back. I'm going to fry him. <laughs> Moses interceded. God is full, full, filled with loving kindness. That's why I'm still here. Anyway. And so the list of animals has at least five different kinds that I count. And cattle, among others, were sacred animals in Egypt and represented by various deities. Colts dedicated to the bull were common throughout Egypt. I'm reading there was Bucchus, the sacred bull of Hermonthus and Menevis, who was worshipped at a place called Heli Heliopolis. Sometimes bulls were considered to embody the gods Ptah and Ra. But the chief bull was Apis, A-P-I-S. At the temple in Memphis, priests maintained a sacred enclosure where they kept a live bull considered to be an incarnation of the god Apis. When the venerable bull died, he was given an elaborate burial. Archaeologists have discovered funeral niches for hundreds of of these bulls in Memphis. Most notably, Apis the bull 
was the God of kingship, rebirth, strength, and fertility. In Egypt, they discovered mummies of all things of cows and bulls. I think we have a photo back there. I'm hoping that we can put up on the screen. And let me show you what they discovered. Uh, you've heard about the mummies that you know, they discovered and King Tut and all of that. Mummified humans that were preserved. Well, this is how seriously they took worship in uh, these things in Egypt. They actually mummified them. One of them looks like one of my dogs. Never mind. <laughs> anyway, with that sad little face. And so this is the sad reality of the worship of false gods in Egypt. Cole says, an ancient record of a battle of the Egyptians was lost because their enemies put a herd of cattle in front of their advancing troops. It worked because the Egyptian soldiers would not shoot at the opposing army for fear of accidentally killing what they considered to be sacred cattle. It became a ploy in warfare to put the sacred cows in front of an advancing army, this is how we can defeat the greatest army of the world, Egypt. And for us, our sacred cows, we can go through the list of the things that we don't want to touch in our lives. God wants them obliterated. He wants to demolish our idols who are really entangling us. And how we walk that out, we all, of course, have to wrestle with before the Lord. And so the dead bull was embalmed and buried in Memphis. They said his soul then passed to the world beyond as Osiris Apis with a slash. A new Apis was always believed to be born upon the death of the old. And all I can say is, that's a lot of bull. <laughs> Have you guys heard of what a Texas Longhorn sermon is? It's from Chuck Swindoll. A Texas Longhorn sermon is a point at the beginning, a point at the end, and a lot of bull in between. <laughs> Chuck Swindoll. Anyway. The plagues were judgments brought on Egypt's gods. Numbers 33.4. I wonder, if the plagues were a modern phenomenon, what sacred cows would God be attacking in our world? And in the last year, has he? Have we sat up and taken note to what he might be saying to us? But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, verse 4, so that nothing will die, and here death connected to the plagues is, comes up for the first time, of all that belongs to the sons of Israel. Now, in the prior uh, plague, it didn't touch the sons of Israel. God made a distinction. And now death is mentioned at the end of verse 4, but there's a sanctification, a setting apart of the animals of Israel in Goshen. And there will be a direct hit. It will be the hand of the Lord against those animals, but the Lord will make a distinction. It will not come on his people. And the Lord said a definite time, verse 5, saying tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And so the Lord did this thing on the morrow. And all the livestock of Egypt died, but of the livestock of the sons of Israel, not one died. 
The Lord set a fixed time, and this thing occurred. And the livestock, horses, camels, and the like, the list that we saw, began to drop like flies in Egypt. But not one animal in Goshen died. There was no way to deny the supernatural uh, reality of this plague. You don't have a geographic area where, you know, all of a sudden, none of the animals in this area, probably central Egypt, die, but everything else dies. The plague doesn't respect, normally, political and religious boundaries. And what God is saying is, I'm the one behind this. This is not some phenomenon that just took place. I am doing it. I am making a distinction between people in covenant with me and people not in covenant. Indeed, the gospel, brothers and sisters, is a matter of life and death. I know it's not popular to say, but here's the reality. If you are in Christ, you have passed out of death into life. If you are not in Christ, you are condemned already. Death is on you. It is lifted from you in the ultimate sense in Christ. You are alive in Christ, amen? Amen. But if you're part of the system of the world and you reject the Lord, you remain in death. We can remember back in 1985, there was something called mad cow's disease called bovine spongiform with another medical word. It attacked the brain. Brain tissue was gradually eaten away until it came to resemble a sponge. It literally drove cows and then people mad in 1985. Do you know how quickly we forget things, though? We're like, oh, back in the day in the Bible, there were the plagues. (laughs) I don't know. We had mad cow's disease. We've had other things that have occurred. And now we've moved from inconvenience and annoyance to death. And the effect of the economy, of course, of Egypt. Now, some people say, well, there's perhaps a possible contradiction in Exodus 9-6 on the fifth plague because in 9-19, when the seventh plague uh, hits, Moses specifically instructs the Egyptians to bring their livestock in out of the hail, 9-19. And those who fear the Lord, 9-20, do so. How could they do that if there were none left? Most likely, the plague only affected the livestock in the field. And later on, there's going to be a warning. And the warning is going to be this. A plague of hail is coming. We'll do this next time we're together. And those who bring their animals in for shelter, and this is the way it is framed, those who fear the word of the Lord and bring their animals in for shelter, nothing happened to them. But those who left their animals, and it says, and their servants, and paid no heed to the word of God, they experienced the hail and the consequences that went with it. So I think this is how we can understand the word all in 9.6. Not all the cattle or the livestock died, but it was just those, notice, that were in the field. And I pointed that out to you, I think, in in verse 3. Another possibility, the Hebrew word typically translated all, kol, K-O-L, can mean all sorts of or all kinds of or from all over the place. So one writer says all may be taken not in an absolute sense, but according to popular usage, 
as denoting such a quantity that what remained was nothing by comparison. Here's an example. Like, I lost all my money in the stock market, or I lost all my possessions in the fire, or all my horses perished in the fire. It may, you may use the word all, but you may have some remnants left, but by comparison, you know, you would use the word all. So those are a couple ways to find a solution there. Pharaoh 7 sent, and behold, there was not even one of the livestock of Israel dead. So he, he wanted to do some investigation. All right, go over to Goshen. There's all these dead animals all over the place. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine everything that was out in the field, horses, camels, cattle, dead on the ground? I remember uh, a teacher, and his name escapes me as a pastor, and I think he was in India or somewhere, and he said he would go out for a morning run and he would get some exercise, and then he was doing ministry. And he said he ran by, and there was a dead uh, cow on the ground. And it was being eaten by bugs and worms. And he said he looked at it, and the Lord spoke to his heart, and he said, do you see that? That's a picture of your sin. <laughs> it's like, ooh. All God's people said, ooh. But if we saw our sin that way, I think we would move away from it more quickly. And maybe the messengers had to walk around all these dead animals and they peeked over the wall into Goshen if there was a wall. Because Pharaoh said, I want to find out. I want to find out if the animals in Israel or Goshen are all still alive. What do you think he suspected before he got the report back? Do you think he thought he was going to find out that there were a bunch of dead animals in Goshen? I don't think so. I think deep down in his soul, he knew. He knew that they were all going to be alive. And so he goes and he gets the damage report. <laughs> and they came back. Said, uh, they're all still alive in Goshen. Would that convince you, brethren, that maybe you should follow the God of Israel? And so not even one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was what? Hardened, and he did not let the people go. What will it take? How many times does this guy have to get his clock cleaned before he realizes that God, the God of Israel is the true God? Devastation everywhere, I'm sure, for Egypt. And each time Pharaoh and Egypt experience a plague, they go back to business as usual. They quickly forget what God has done. Even when the remnants of death are all around them, they just move on. The heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can understand it? So Pharaoh needs more. So the Lord said, to Moses and Aaron this time, take for yourselves handfuls of soot. It says from a kiln or from the kiln, if you have an ESV or King James, the furnace. And let Moses throw it toward the sky in the sight of Pharaoh. So all of a sudden now the next plague is coming. Moses and Aaron go and they're to take some soot from either a kiln or the furnace and throw it up into the air. I'll explain to you what this means in a moment. 
but it's in the sight of Pharaoh. There are two possibilities of the origin of the soot. Some people that the soot, say the soot is taken from a brick-making kiln. So when they had to make these bricks for Pharaoh, right, he, there was blood, sweat, and tears, tears, and they were building these cities for Pharaoh. And maybe the soot was taken from the very place where the bricks were made. But there's another possibility. There was a god in Egypt called Typhoon or Typhon, T-Y-P-H-O-N or double O-N, And this God was worshipped through sacrifice. Sometimes they would throw a bull into the furnace. And on occasion, they would practice something called human sacrifice. And to appease this God called Typhoon, God of the storm and all of that, sometimes they would sacrifice humans in there to appease these gods. Later, Israel did something like this as they caused their children to pass through the fire and sacrifice to the god Molech. And God says, I want you to take the dust. I'll let you think about where the origin of the soot came from, and I want you to throw it up into the sky. Now, the Egyptian priests and and magicians, what they would do is when they went into this furnace, they would take the uh, ashes and they would, in a religious ceremony, throw them up into the sky, whether the bull or humans or a combination thereof, And as the soot fell on Egypt, it was supposed to be a shower of blessings. Something like this. Typhoon, we've sacrificed to you. Now give us showers of blessings. See what we've done? We've given you our sacrifices. We've given you our best. Now give us what we need for our lives. Now some of us say, well, the Egyptians were certainly some strange people, weren't they? Mummified cows, mummified bulls. You know, throwing dust up into the air, but there's some strange practices we have today. And maybe they're not put in the same religious language, but people do all kinds of crazy things. And so they threw it up. Moses and Aaron did not take the ashes from the furnace of Typhons, one writer says. The furnace which they took their ashes from was one of uh, the Israelites used to make the mud bricks for the building of the Egyptians' uh, Buildings. God was showing the Egyptians, and particularly Pharaoh, that Typhoon was powerless. He was showing them that the simple ashes from the slave furnaces could be made to have more power by the one true God than the ashes of their holy furnace, so to speak. And so as the ashes fell, they hit, and it would become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and would become boils. The word boils is sheken in Hebrew, and it, could, it can refer to a burning, an oozing boil, and even has a reference to leprosy. We've got a picture of one of those boils that we wanted to show you. I, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Some of you are like, no, he's not going to do it. <laughs> we already saw mummified cows, which kind of grossed me out. I'm not sure if I'm going to have a donut. And now... No, we're not going to do the boils. But I think you can imagine that they did it in the presence of the Pharaoh. And it could be that when they threw it up in his presence, and his magicians were probably right by his side, as we would imagine, or they were called out either way. It could be that the first ones to experience the boils were Pharaoh 
and his magicians. Now, there would, that would leave little doubt as to the origin of the plague, right? The dust goes up in the air, it starts falling down, and instead of blessings, <laughs> there's boils. And boils cause you to itch and give you pain, and sometimes they ooze, and it broke out on man and beasts throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from a kiln or ashes from a furnace, stood before Pharaoh. Moses threw it toward the sky and it became boils breaking out with sores on man and beast. And it burned. You know, leprosy in the Bible is a picture of sin. How many of you have watched The Chosen? Have you watched that? Uh, it's pretty good uh, Kind of, it gives a, a, a little bit more of a human perspective, if you will, and you know, you can make what you will of the dialogue with the other characters, but I think they've done a, a relatively good job. But there's, a, there's one of the ones in the first season where a leprous man gets healed by Jesus. And as he's approaching the group of disciples, they're like, get away from us, you, you know, you're a leper. And Jesus begins to walk towards the man, and that was unthinkable. You were supposed to keep your distance or you could get this terrible plague that was, there was no, no remedy for it. If you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus touched him. I am willing. See, the world is infected with the boils of sin, brethren. We all have a disease that is lethal, 100% deadly, 100% of the time. The wages of our sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. And anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, he touches us, right? He removes the leprosy of sin from our lives. Don't forget what God has done for you. The enemy wants you to forget, but the Lord is good. And the magicians, 11, we're almost done, could not stand before Moses because of the boils. <laughs> For the boils were on the magicians as well as on all the Egyptians. Now, the Egyptians were very much into cleanliness and apparently they couldn't, the magicians couldn't do their priesthood if they were defiled in any way. So the boils definitely defiled them, but they couldn't stand before Moses any longer. I think they're embarrassed, right? Boils, boils, and more boils. And I don't know if not being able to stand means that they fell to their knees or they have, had to exit stage left, but the Bible says that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. By the way, after this, we never see the magicians again in the book of Exodus. Bye-bye. <laughs> Remember I told you in previous messages, I think they had taken some long extended vacations. I think some of them have retired after this. The boils were a little too much. And by the way, we don't know how long this went on because the next plague we get is the plague of hail and we go right into it and we don't know how long the boils last but let me just ask you, how long would they need to last for you until you made a change in your life? Have you ever looked in the mirror or can you remember a time when you looked in the mirror and realized what you had done to yourself 
and how desperately you need God. Uh, Pat Summerall was um, a co-announcer with John Madden in many of the big football games in years gone by. Pat Summerall was um, an admitted alcoholic. He said he drank and drank and drank some more. And he had the privilege of being this well-known broadcaster, so he did all these major events. And he said he was, he was actually at Augusta, Georgia for the Masters. And he said that he had been drinking and he had been an alcoholic for years and he was, you know, at least in some ways trying to cover it. And he said one night he went into the bathroom, he felt sick, and he threw up a portion of his stomach into the toilet. And he said after throwing up, he looked in the mirror in the hotel room or in the place he was staying, and he looked at his face and he said, all of a sudden in the restroom, the lights became brighter and brighter and brighter until he got a really good look at his face. And he couldn't believe what he had become. And so there was some uh, gathering that occurred and Pat Summerall uh, shared this story in this setting. Tom Landry, who was the well-known coach of the Dallas Cowboys, used to wear that little cap hat, um, heard Summerall share the story. And he said to him later, do you want to know what that light was in that restroom? Yes, yes, I, I want to know, tell me. That was the light of God. God was trying to show you who you are without him, what you've become. Now, as I understand the story, Summerall became a Christian. And I don't know what boils it's going to take, but I'll tell you, there was, a, there was a, several nights when I looked into the mirror in my own life and saw close up what sin had done to my life. And I knew I was gonna die unless I ran to the Savior. He's so faithful to save. Amen? So faithful to save. And he pulled me out of darkness, brought me into his marvelous light, cleansed me of the boils of sin, so to speak. How long did this go on? How many times did Pharaoh need to scratch and see the oozing and realize the damage reports coming from his land and how Goshen was protected until finally he yields and says, okay, uncle, I give up. But he wouldn't. And the final verse for this morning says, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not listen to them just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. I want you to just look down in your text and it says in verse 17, still you exalt yourself against my people by not letting them go. I will tell you, for all the debate on the hardening of Pharaoh's heart and how he hardened his own heart and then God hardened his heart, and I'm not gonna get into that right now. We'll talk a little bit more next time about that. But here's what we do know. Pride was a major element in Pharaoh's obstinacy. He was obstinate against God because he was too busy exalting himself. And this is our biggest battle. Self-exaltation. 
We just think we're more important than everybody else. And even when we you know, are beaten up on ourselves, it's usually because we have issues with pride. A pastor was going through, I was listening to a recent message, and he was going through some of the ways that we can be prideful and think that we're special. And he was talking about what true love is and how the love of self is such a thing that we battle. And he was asking these penetrating questions about how we look at ourselves and how we exalt ourselves. And by the time he was done, I was like, oh, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me. Because we all can see this in our hearts, right? Self-exaltation instead of God-exaltation. Oh, Lord, change me, make me, enlarge my heart. Would you pray with me, Father? Thank you. These plagues are very revealing. And they're sometimes not easy to deal with, but, but we know that Jesus Christ entered into this sin-ridden world and lived that perfect life that I can't live and took that punishment and dealt with that shame at the cross and took the wrath, the plague of judgment, drank the cup for me to set me free. I was in bondage to sin and death. Jesus Christ, the Passover lamb, came to rescue us. Lord, we're just so humbled and so grateful that the Exodus is a picture of our salvation. We were lost. We were being held in the clutches of Pharaoh. We had our sacred cows, and even though we thought we were maybe set apart, we could see ourselves embracing those ways. And you want us to be free to serve you, to worship you. Would you bow your heart? Bow your heart in prayer right now and make this about your prayer now. Father, enlarge my heart so that I can serve you. I want to be free in every sense of that word. I don't want to be entangled anymore to the flesh, the world, or the enemy. Lord, set me free. Cry out to him. If you're not a Christian this morning and maybe you've been away for a while, maybe you're a prodigal and you've just seen yourself entangled in fear, uncertainty, worry, found yourself plagued by many things, the Lord wants you to be free. He is freedom. He sets the captives free. That's why he came. He can remove the weight so that you can stand up again. He can put your feet on solid ground. I want you to cry out to him. You don't have to have perfect words, but if you're not a Christian, it's, it is about repenting of sin and just saying, Lord God, I thank you that you came on a rescue mission. I thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross and rising from the dead. Be my king, be my God, be my savior, be my Lord. Teach me your ways. If you're a prodigal and maybe you just found yourself pulled back to the world, it's understandable. But the Lord wants you set apart for him. So 
Ask him to break the chains. Ask him to set you free in every sense of that word, to make you more usable so you can hit the mark and be his ambassador on this planet. You only have so much time. And Father, for this wonderful congregation, thank you for their desire to learn, their heart to be taught by you, to have the scriptures read us instead of us just reading them. Change us and make us more like you. We pray over our friends and family who don't know you, those who may be hurting and broken this morning. There's a lot of stuff going on, a lot of heaviness of heart, a lot of mental stuff going on, spiritual stuff, and we're praying that you would break chains, set the captives free, Lord. Your word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. So show us more light in the coming days. Help us just to take one step at a time, one step closer to you today, this week, to be a vessel. And you may even surprise us in the way that you use us, Lord. We're thankful, we're grateful. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name.